everyone, this is Dr. James Spencer, and you're listening to the Useful to God podcast. Useful to God is a daily Bible teaching program for Christians who desire to be hearers and doers of God's Word. For additional resources and opportunities for further study, visit usefultogod.com. Now let's get started. Hey everyone, this is Dr. James Spencer, and welcome to today's episode of Useful to God. In today's episode, we'll be looking at Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well. If you're keeping track, you may find it strange that I've decided to jump over chapter 3. In reality, Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman and his interaction with Nicodemus go together, as do his interactions with the Gentile official in 4.43-53 and the men at the pool of Bethsaida in 5.1-15. As such, we're going to begin at John 2, 23 through 25, and then proceed through John 3 and 4 to get to the narrative of the Samaritan woman. So I'm just going to begin by reading John 2, 23 through 25. Now, when, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. So there are a few points to notice in these three verses. First, after his first sign at the wedding in Canaan, uh, where he turns water into wine, many people believe in Jesus. It would seem, however, that the people's belief is not an unqualified good. In part, that may be because they believed when they saw the signs Jesus performed. Signs can bring forth lasting faith. We see that in John 10, 38. However, there's a sense that those who come for the show are not devoted followers. They have an untrustworthy faith. Second, the nature of their faith is suggested by verse 24. Jesus does not entrust himself to them. Jesus, in other words, keeps an arm length from these particular people. And finally, there is the matter of what Jesus understands about all people. Verse 25 notes that Jesus did not need anyone to bear witness about man because he knows what is in man. And the shift from all people at the end of verse 24 to man in verse 25 actually connects the end of chapter 2 to the beginning of chapter 3 in which a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus and Jesus have a conversation. And so the connection marks Nicodemus not necessarily as a genuine seeker, but as the sort of man about whom Jesus needs no one to bear witness. And these final three verses in chapter 2 set the context for what's going to happen in chapter 3. And this Nicodemus is connected to one of those about whom Jesus needs no one to bear witness. And that's further strengthened by Nicodemus's initial words to Jesus. He says this, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Note particularly the reference to signs. Nicodemus has seen the signs and thus has some level of respect for Jesus, which seems to grow possibly into faith throughout the gospel. Uh, Nicodemus is actually referenced again in John 7 and John 19. But at this point, Nicodemus is characterized as a ruler of the Jews. As such, he stands as a representative of the Pharisees in particular, but likely for the Jews more generally. Jesus is engaging a paradigmatic Jewish ruler here. And so Nicodemus's use of we rather than I to address Jesus suggests that he has come to Jesus to inquire on behalf of the Pharisees. They have, they have seen what Jesus is doing, and they believe that he is from God. And so it would seem that what they want to know is whether Jesus is more than a rabbi, more than a teacher. 
Jesus does not respond to Nicodemus by telling him more about himself, uh, but with a statement about eternal life. And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Jesus's response highlights the flawed assumptions in Nicodemus's opening question. While Nicodemus thinks he knows something of Jesus because of Jesus's signs, Jesus corrects him, noting that rebirth is essential to see the kingdom. To put it differently, if Nicodemus has to decide whether he is allied with Jesus, he's already in trouble. If Nicodemus could not see the kingdom, he could not participate in it. And the implication is that his questioning of Jesus reflects a lack of knowledge or an inability to see. In verse 5, Jesus says, says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, much has been made about the reference to water and spirit. Some suggest that water refers to baptism. However, it seems best to consider the Old Testament background of the phrase in Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, which reads, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So in Ezekiel, water speaks to purification and the spirit gestures toward the new covenant that will change our hearts from stone into hearts of flesh. So Nicodemus is unclear about what it means to be reborn. And that lack of knowledge becomes the topic of the discourse in verses 6 through 15. Even when Jesus clarifies that he is speaking of a spiritual rebirth or uh, everyone who is born of the Spirit, in verse 8, Nicodemus is still unclear about what Jesus is really saying. And as such, Nicodemus and those he represents cannot receive the testimony of Jesus about heavenly things, nor can they understand how to obtain eternal life. Now, while some see verses 16 through 21 as the words of Jesus, they're likely a comment offered by John. After the completion of the dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus in verse 15, John offers a reflection on the dialogue, noting that the one and only Son was given by God for the eternal life of all who believe. The Son was not sent to condemn, but to save. Yet those who do not accept him are judged because of their refusal to come to the light. And with this brief discussion of Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus, we can now turn to Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman, but before considering chapter 4, we need to understand why the Jews and Samaritans were at odds. So in 2 Kings 17, we see that after the Assyrians resettle Samaria, God sends lions to kill some of the residents because they don't fear the Lord. As such, the Assyrian king requests that Jewish priests be sent to Samaria to teach the law to the residents. And while the people of the land continued to serve their own gods, they also came to fear the Lord. But Jews in Samaria were viewed with suspicion and disdain due to the intermingling with foreigners and various religious beliefs. Josephus, an ancient historian, also characterized the Samaritans as traitors who disassociated themselves with the Jews who were suffering under Roman oppression. The Samaritans then set up their own temple on Mount Gerizim, and you know Josephus also notes a number of other conflicts between the Jews and the Samaritans. So the tensions between the Jews and Samaritans would have made it seem strange that Jesus, who the Samaritan woman identifies as a Jew, is sitting next to a well in Samaria by himself and engaging a Samaritan woman in conversation. And we should also recognize the differences set up between Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. First, Nicodemus was a man and the Samaritan woman is a woman. 
Second, Nicodemus is Jewish, and the Samaritan woman is part of a group the Jews generally despised. And third, Nicodemus was a teacher and ruler of the Jews, suggesting that he had strong knowledge of the Jewish scriptures, whereas the Samaritan woman held false doctrines about God and about where to worship him and all those kind of things. And so these contracts actually serve to connect chapters 3 and 4, as does the use of water symbolism. So while physical water is part of the local setting at the well in chapter 4, the references to water quickly move from the physical to the symbolic, much like what we see in chapter 3. So Jesus' initial request for water is surprising to the Samaritan woman because the Jews would have viewed the Samaritans as sources of uncleanness. Though it isn't clear that Jesus ever gets his water, he does suggest that the Samaritan woman should ask him for living water, which she ultimately does prior to verses 16 through 26, where she and Jesus discuss her marital status. Now, the fact that the woman had five husbands is often used to disparage the character of the Samaritan woman. Uh, folks usually view her as an adulterist, adulteress. Uh, but New Testament scholar Lynn Kohick uh, has actually argued that it's unlikely that the woman was an adulteress, and it seems more likely that the woman had been widowed and perhaps divorced in the past. Adultery, in some ways, would be difficult to square with the woman's ability to gather others from the city. So usually people who were adulterers and adulteresses uh, would not have had much of a standing in the community. And so having her be able to go into the community, say something, uh, give give the this word to the Samaritans and have them believe her would have been far more difficult to square with what's going on in the narrative. And so while her relationships with men were certainly a problem, which is why Jesus brings them up, we probably shouldn't jump to the conclusion of adultery. In any case, Jesus' comment about her marital status really just opens the woman up to the possibility that Jesus is a prophet. And then she engages Jesus in dialogue about the different beliefs between the Samaritans and the Jews. So Jesus notes ultimately that Gerizim and Jerusalem are less important or provisional um, and recognizes that salvation comes from the Jews. So here, Jesus is both cutting through one of the conflicts that exists between the Jews and Samaritans without authorizing the Samaritans' beliefs. God is not revealed through the Samaritans, but through the Jews. It's not that the Jews are automatically saved, but that God revealed himself through the Jews. As such, Samaritan worship is not based in a true knowledge of God, which is problematic because, as Jesus notes in verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The reference to spirit may harken back to Jesus's conversation with Nicodemus. However, it seems more likely that it's a statement about God's nature that further strengthens the notion that Gerizim and Jerusalem are actually provisional. The the location where people worship is actually um, less important in the long term from an eternal perspective. The phrase, in spirit and truth, refers to the essentials of worship as fitted to the context with the Samaritan woman. If Gerizim and Jerusalem are not paramount, the location of worship will be of little consequence. Truth, however, will be crucial. And as such, true worshipers will not be tied to a place, but will worship God as he truly is, regardless of their location. The Samaritan woman responds that the Messiah is coming and will tell us all things. Jesus then reveals to the Samaritan woman that he actually is the Messiah, and this prompts the woman to run into town where she speaks to the people, saying the following in verse 28, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? 
The woman's question draws the town people to Jesus, many of whom believed in him because of the woman's testimony and subsequently because of Jesus's word to them as he stays in Samaria for the next couple of days. But before the townspeople actually come back, Jesus speaks with his disciples who urge him to eat. And Jesus echoes Deuteronomy 8 when he tells them that he is sustained by obedience to the Father's will and work. He tells them that he has bread of which they do not know. The connection between Jesus's statement here regarding the bread and the lesson he offers his disciples isn't immediately transparent, yet it may be that Jesus is speaking to the urgency of reaping the harvest he notes in verse 35. The disciples are doing the work of reaping now. They're not waiting for the harvest, and it is already here, as will soon become evident when the Samaritan woman brings the townspeople back. Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman here reminds us of the radical inclusivity of Jesus' ministry. It is inclusive and exclusive at the same time. No one is too far gone to hear the message of the gospel. Living water is offered to everyone. Still, living water cannot be received on one's own terms. Receiving Jesus and recognizing him as the Christ is required to receive that living water. Whereas Nicodemus, who was a teacher of the Jews, could not see the kingdom, the Samaritans believed Jesus because of the words he had spoken. And the passage should be a challenge to God's people today. We are in a world no less dark than the one Jesus addressed. We cannot, however, hold the world at arm's length, nor can we embrace the world without challenging it to be transformed by accepting Jesus Christ. The message of the gospel must be proclaimed. We must be hospitable, open, and undiscriminating in our proclamation of the kingdom. Everybody needs to hear the message of salvation. It should not be kept from anyone. At the same time, the message of salvation demands decision. For individuals to accept Christ will require transformation. They cannot continue in sin and accept Christ all at the same time. They can't have their cake and eat it too. There must be a shift, a freedom from sin, so that there can be a freedom to serve Christ. Christ loves sinners, yet sinners cannot embrace the darkness while also walking in the light. Join us on the next episode of Useful to God as we consider John 7. Blessings. Blessings.